0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 154. My name is Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you that you have been our provider and you have been our protector. We know that uh, lately um, there's just been so much craziness in the world uh, and craziness close to home. Um, If it's not crazy politics, or crazy vaccine news, well, then it's crazy weather, Lord. But we thank you that you are the one who is in control. You calm the storm. You are the one who rides the waves. Um, You are the one who created all things. And so we have nothing to fear. Um, So if we would just continue to keep our eyes focused on you, like Peter focused on Yeshua, then we too can walk on water. Um, So help us, Lord, to continue to um, keep our eyes focused where they need to be despite what's going on around us help us to have the proper perspective. And the only way we can do that is if we um, keep our relationship with you going strong, um, we have to stay in the word daily. We need to stay in prayer. We need to be uh, continually uh, fellowshiping with one another and encouraging one another, strengthening one another, reaching out to one another, uh, and just continuing to carry on this, this um, uh, the attitude of Messianic sympathy with one another, with our brothers and sisters around the world. So help us to put that effort in and do that hard work uh, to keep ourselves strong in Messiah. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua, O main. Thank you everyone for joining me week after week. This is the Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Noval in Thornton, Colorado. That's Congregation The Harvest. You can find us online at graftedin.com like you can see on my screen right now. If you can't make it uh, in person, we'd love to have you uh, at least hit our YouTube channel. Go to our website at graftedin.com and click on the video there that you can see on my screen. And uh, Mark is um, going through his sermons as usual. And uh, he uploads them to YouTube and there you can watch the videos in case you can't catch them, in case you can't join us online or join us live. Keep in mind that the the fall feasts are right around the corner. Um, By the time you watch this video, um, the first of the three or four, depending on how many count, Uh, the fall feast will have already been behind us. Rosh Hashanah, or that's what it's going to say on your calendar, Rosh Hashanah, uh, or Yom Troua, the Feast of Trumpets, will have already passed, because that's right early early next week, according to our recording. Um, But, This is the Live Internet Studies and I've got my own website that is chock full of resources in case you aren't able to join with a Messianic congregation during the holidays um, or even on Sabbaths. uh, At least you can get some content online that I think is somewhat trustworthy. Uh, Go to my website at tetzetorah.com That's at t-e-t-z-e-t-o-r-a-h dot com and uh, just browse around there. I'll have the um, uh, festival stuff Information uh, probably as a pop up that'll show up within the next few days so that you can follow along with my own commentaries and things like that. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you were to visit me. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetei Torah. Ministries, all one word, and from my YouTube channel. If you just notice, well, right away I say that it's updated daily, which is true. If you'll notice, I'm quite busy. Click on the videos tab; you'll see that I'm uploading something um, every day of the week. Um, so follow along with the short little series, or or the live internet studies, the longer series. Uh, either way, uh, I think you'll find something that you like. Uh, click on the playlist and look at all the. Uh, um, Uh, uh, video content that I make available for you. Make sure you do these five things for me if you do go go to my YouTube channel. Number one, make sure you subscribe. Become a part of the family. Let's all join in together. Number two, hit the thumbs up um, and let me know that you like the content. Number three, make sure you hit the little bell for notification after you subscribe. I suppose I should have put that second. Um, Hit the little bell and that way you'll be notified on your um, through your Google account that's used to subscribe to my youtube channel so subscribe and then hit the bell and then hit the thumbs up that's number three and then number four, um, leave comments and tell me what you like about the videos or what you don't like. If you have questions or um, disagreements, I'm open to those as well. Um, or tell me what content you'd like to see. I'll see what I can put together. And then lastly, um, hit the little share icon when you're watching my videos and share them with your friends and family members and your other social media contacts. And that would really be uh, that would really help me out as well. That'll help my uh, YouTube algorithm, okay? As I mentioned, these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Um, and here are some brief logistics. This is episode number one hundred and fifty-four. As I mentioned, uh, September fourth, twenty twenty-one, is the date of this recording in the United States. That is, we meet currently. We meet Saturday afternoons from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. But by the time you're watching this video, we will probably have moved the study. I think we're going to move it one hour up. So it'll be Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. starting next week week. Um, the hour long study is broken up into two 30 minute segments not counting all the announcements and things like that and the videos. Uh, there's Romans 14 unplugged feast and fast and food oh my we're in part 70 tonight. We're almost done with the study. We're we're looking at um, I think verse around like verse 20 D1 or something like that. We're, w- we're way down into the chapter. You know, There's only like 23 verses or so. So we're really almost done with this study. We'll finish it um, uh, before the year is out and uh, we'll go into a different study. Segment 2 is given over to the longer study exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We have finally moved into paper 3 where we're discussing the question Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Which is part 87 of the study. So I hope you're enjoying the... Um, the progress, finally, it's it's been an ongoing study, a slower study. We've been going on it for easily over a year, um, and uh, finally starting to talk about the Holy Spirit. I've been I've had a lot of um, uh, fun putting together that part of the study uh, before I released it to the public, kind of tweaking it and getting everything ready. I think I made some final last minute um, uh, updates that you'll see here in a moment, uh, just a few days ago. So. We're also going to watch a YouTube video that's connected to the festivals, the feast days. It's from my short question, short uh, answer live series. But the question is, what is the prophetic significance of the fall feasts in the Old Testament? It's no secret that the festivals point towards Messiah. That's the overall easy answer right up front. What's the prophetic significance? Well, they point to Yeshua. But there's a little bit more to that. There's a little more detail involved that I believe God wants us to um, latch a hold of um, when it comes to studying the feasts and participating in them. They, yes, we know they point to Messiah, but in what way? Uh, first coming, second coming, that type of thing. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in the video some important details real quick just as i mentioned skype is uh, or as i mentioned uh we meet from 4 p.m to 5 p.m central standard time and skype is the platform that we use the easiest way to join us click on the blue link that you see on my screen right now it's actually a linked image if you click on that image right now if you're if you were watching this or listening to this and it was the time frame of uh, between 4 and 5 p.m. or 5 and 6 p.m. depending on which time I said um, it would launch Skype and you would join the live study. So that's the easiest way to join us. No need to send me an email and ask me for the, the Skype link or anything like that. It's always available or if you do click on the link sometime and we're not joining the study just bookmark it and that way when the time comes um, you can uh, use it a little bit later. And then uh, lastly as I always mention if you do go to my website at com. I prayerfully ask that you take a moment to scroll all the way to the bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and look at the little yellow donate button there and prayerfully consider... Um, contributing to my ministry and to me as a Torah teacher. Um, I'm still in a place where I could sure use the help, so if the Lord is laying it on your heart to assist me financially, this is the mechanism that I've uh, created for you to be able to donate securely uh, via PayPal. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, without further ado... Let's jump right into the um, uh, Romans study. Uh, Romans 14, unplugged, feast and fast and food. Oh my. We're finally in verse uh, 19. We're making progress. We just got through looking at the question of food and really what does Paul mean when he says nothing is unclean in and of itself. And uh, we've determined that much of the chapter has to deal with food. Really, most of the sections that Paul addresses uh, have to do with differences between um, uh, preferences of clean and unclean or common, unholy, profane, um, special fast days, uh, days that uh, people were meeting to uh, uh to get together maybe were tip for table fellowship and things like that. What we also learned is from the overall context that Paul's likely not addressing Sabbath versus Sunday issues when he sp- said earlier that one man considers one day special and another man considers all days alike. If you look at the overall context, it is very highly likely. There's a margin of error here, obviously, uh, because sometimes you just can't know for sure. There's more than one way that a verse could go, but it's highly likely. And this is the um, the thesis that I'm going with is that when he talks about one man saying one day is a special, one day is others saying that they're all alike, he's talking about fast days, which were um, not mandated by the Torah, meaning. Some people are going to say it's on one day and some people are going to say it's on another day. And it doesn't matter really um, if you're not all in agreement just as long as you don't fight about it because the Torah doesn't come down on one side of the fence or the other. It leaves that open to you when it comes to fast days. And so um, that's also related to food. That's also related to food. Um, What we're learning from the larger context is that In this part of Paul's letter, he's recognizing the socio-religious breakdown of the two groups that are in front of him. Of course, he wasn't there when he wrote the letter. He's probably writing it from Corinth in the mid-50s of his day, before he even went to Rome. But the two groups are the weak and the strong, a.k.a. the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews would have been recognized by the Gentiles as the weak, and the word weak there is probably attached to their preference for not just keeping Torah within a context of maintaining faithfulness to God, but more specifically, as Mark Nanos has demonstrated, there's a strong case that can be made that the weakness is directly attached to their lack of accepting Yeshua as Messiah formally yet. So, I'll put a little um, graphic on the screen here in post-production that shows you uh, some of the breakdown, but I'm going with that. Um, thesis as well because I think it fits the overall context of Paul's letter that Paul's working with Jews and Gentiles who were still close enough uh, in contact with one another that synagogue uh, participation from the Gentile side of the house was still available, it was still open to them and they would have been meeting uh, unbelieving Jews uh, in those meetings and so those were the weak the strong of course are Jewish and Gentile Christians who do believe in Jesus um, and whatever uh, particulars they keep uh, strong, the strong part, uh, the adjective of strong, is attached to their um, faith in Jesus, not their preference for keeping Torah. So let me just say it this way, so that, uh, and then we'll jump right into the study. I do not subscribe to an interpretation that attaches weak or strong to a person's preference for keeping Torah. That is today's 21st century popular opinion among most Christian Bible study groups and pastors and and, uh, sermons and uh, seminaries and seminarians and things like that. And it's kind of the historic position that the Christian church has taken for a long time. But that position cannot be sustained, it cannot be... um, uh, uh, held up in light of what the torah teaches about walking in torah elsewhere in other words it, it um we have several passages in uh, the prophets where god talks about pouring his spirit out on israel and the result would be that they would walk into his torah jeremiah 31 has some wording about that ezekiel 36 talks about that and we also know that from paul's own testimony that he himself was a lifelong torah keeper not a Torah-breaker. He was a Sabbath-keeper, he was a kosher-keeper, he was a festival-keeper. So he kept Torah and he, as far as we can tell, he would have encouraged uh, people he wrote to to keep Torah as well. So why would he suddenly switch gears and label someone as keeping Torah as weak? Meaning he himself would be in that camp. And he would be uh, especially uh, interpreting that when God spoke to the prophets and told them, uh, "Walk in my." Uh, I'm sorry, be filled with my spirit and walk in my ways. Oh, and by the way, that'll be make you a, a weak person. This would also make Yeshua's statement in Matthew five, where he talks about, "I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it." And those who who keep the law and teach others to do so will be called um, great in the kingdom of heaven. And those who don't keep the Torah and teach others not to keep it will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Go back and read it, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Interestingly, if Paul says that keeping the Torah is a sign of weakness, well, then what he's saying with Yeshua's words is that keep the Torah and teach others to do so, you'll be called great in the kingdom, but you'll be weak. See how that connects together, that doesn't make for good exegesis. So, it also means that Paul himself would be one of the weak if he's a Torah keeper and Torah keeping is a sign of weakness. But we know that if we read Romans 15, the first few verses, that Paul puts himself in the category of the strong. He says we who are strong. Well, now we can connect the the logic back together. If Paul was a, a lifelong Torah keeper and Paul considers himself one of the strong, then weak cannot be a sign of Dentorarchy cannot be a sign of weakness. It must be something else. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going to hold to what uh, Mark Nano says. So let's look at the question that we're going to look at tonight. It's only one verse long. The question is, how can we make for peace and mutual building? And I've, of course, created a question out of um, uh, the verse that we're going to be studying. And so if we just look at the verse uh, that's on my screen now, this is Romans 14.9. I've got it reproduced for you here in my study. Uh, from the ESV it reads so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual uh, building and again this is within the context of Paul having his discussion about people with different food preferences people with different fasting preferences people with different um, understandings of the cultural setting of ancient Israel let me read the Greek for you real quick over on the right side of the page, and then we'll just jump right into uh, exegeting this particular verse. Uh, the Greek says, That's the uh, Greek reading from the SBLGNT version of the Greek. All right, so if we scroll down and look at the notes, I've only got one paragraph that we're going to study tonight. It'll be very short. Again, Keep in mind the greater context of Paul's statement about ma- making for peace and mutual building. It's within the context of the judgmental attitudes that the different groups, the weak and the strong, had towards one another over this idea of uh, food, food understanding, table fellowship, preferences. Keeping in mind that your historic Gentile Christian audience was coming from a um, a culture that didn't have any strong food preferences. Particularly trying to abstain from meat offered to idols or um, any type of special dietary list, like God would have instructed Israel. Compare that with what Israel had been keeping for hundreds of years by this point in time, um, at least religious Jews of Paul's day would have tried to keep kosher to the best of their ability, um, You know, abstaining from food that God said don't eat, abstaining from animals that God said were off limits, right? Go back and read Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14 again. Also keep in mind that, as we and we learned this during the um, technical part, there are Hebrew and Greek terms that are written in our Bibles that are used to describe animals that are clean and animals that are unclean, thus the foods that are produced from them. So we have clean and unclean in these technical terms. On top of that, religious Jews came along and added more terminology to distinguish between food that was otherwise permissible by God's standard but had by man's standard Um, become defiled or profane or common the Greek word koinos refers to that which is handled by everyone and so Paul says "I've, I've learned from Yeshua that there's nothing really that's unclean in of itself instead of interpreting that term unclean from the English as if Paul is teaching his group that the dietary list has been uprooted instead it's better to go with the idea that Paul knew that Jesus taught that the law has not been abolished and not one jot or one tittle will, will disappear from the law, right? Matthew five seventeen 17 uh, through uh, 20, all over again. Instead, what Paul's trying to say is nothing is common in and of itself, let's change that Greek word. Um, not, I'm sorry, don't change the Greek word. Let's change the English translation back over into something that's a little more um, accurate to what the Greek was trying to portray. Paul's not saying that nothing is unclean in of itself. Instead, he's trying to say nothing is common in and of itself. It's it's nothing is profane in and of itself, or unholy, or unsanctioned, or um, uh, something like that. Dirty, we could even fill in. Um, Instead, that's a man-made um, uh, categorization, which is harmless in and of itself, as long as you're not going to fight about it, right? And since the Bible doesn't say either way whether something is common, right, the Bible doesn't tack on that label, that's a man's designation, it's harmless To use it, right? Uh, Person A says, no, I'm not going to eat that for whatever reason. Person B says, no, I'm fine with it. Uh, We're talking about what God says is permissible, right? That's the context. Well, then, um, as long as we don't fight over these as brothers in the Lord, well, then um, Paul's going to say we can have our differences of opinion when it comes to things that are common or not common. Everything really is. Innocent, he's going to go on to say later on, right in the next verse, I think, uh, verse twenty. Everything true, everything really is clean, and the word clean there doesn't mean that there's no unclean animals. It means that everything's innocent. It's a, it's a, it's a form of the Greek word a kathartos without the a in front of it. It's katharos, clean. And we looked at that last week as well. All right, so let's look this week at um, my notes here, and this is just one paragraph long, and then we'll turn to the uh, Shema study. Here's what I have to say about. Paul's statement about um, making for mutual upbuilding, peace and mutual building. I say, let us start this section by reviewing Mark Nano's historical perspective on the rhetorical implications from this letter. Keep in mind, I believe, and Mark Nano's is going to just hit this on the head, I believe that the Christian communities, the Gentile Christians in Paul's day, we're still talking about the mid-50s to late 50s of his day, the Gentile Christians would have been largely attached to synagogue groups. They would have been operating underneath the umbrella term of Judaism. To be sure, there are a few places in the New Testament that describe uh, uh, Christianity as a sect of Judaism, right? a sect known as the Way or the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, And history also attests to this reality that first century Christianity, was a form of first-century Judaism. It was one of the branches, or or um, denominations, if you want to use that, that modern terminology, um, of Judaism. It was seen by the Judaisms as another form of Judaism, and it was seen by the pagans as another form of Judaism, or the Romans, or the Greeks. So it was seen from both within and from without as a form of Judaism, albeit a kind of a transcultural form of Judaism that was really um uh pushing the limits when it came to certain understandings of how to keep the law right as a very relaxed version of of Judaism when it came to what gentiles were expected to do but nevertheless um this is important as we study Romans because Paul would have uh, would have expected the Gentile Christians to have not only a better appreciation for the Judaisms and the religion of Israel and the scriptures of Israel and access to them, but also he would have expected a certain amount of religious protection uh, that was afforded by Rome to the Jewish groups uh, to be ex- uh, extended over to Gentile Christians. Now, we're also operating, as I mentioned earlier in our study, with the understanding that there was a uh, a hurtful um uh, expulsion degree put in put out by Emperor Claudius around the same time, or a little earlier actually, than Paul's letter, that would have decimated the, the uh Jewish communities to some extent. I don't believe it completely drove every Jew out of Rome. Uh, I downplay I tend to downplay it myself a little bit. That's my own biased opinion. But it is based on some historical um uh uh Accurate information um, that we did look at. Go back and look at my other study, or earlier in the study. I don't want to go through it right now. So this is the context that um, Mark Nanos is going to remind us of some of the um, uh, details. Let's just read this part, and like I said, I won't wax long. Keep in mind, we're going to be we're, we're discussing the question about how can we as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah have a mutually upbuilding experience. In the body of Messiah, what may have worked in the first century may not work today. This is true. That's just common sense. But there are timeless lessons in the Bible that we can and must draw from as we study this part of Paul's letter. We need to um, look at some of the problems that they faced in the first century between Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. How did they solve those problems? And then how can we make a practical application in today's 21st century Messianic communities where we still have some separation between Jews and Gentiles, some, some disagreements and some fights that break out, sometimes over food. Here's what Mark Nanos has to say. Of course, he's not going to be the final answer on this. It's just one perspective. In the formal opening of the letter, Paul introduces himself in language that would make little sense to a Greco-Roman person apart from learning the story of Christ within the context of the Jewish communal narrative, one that can be developed from Jewish scriptures, but not elsewhere so right away we see that the Gentiles were brought into this relationship with God and into proximity with the Commonwealth of Israel remind yourself about what Paul taught in Ephesians uh, the letter there that those who were Gentiles who were formerly far off have now been by the blood of Messiah and their faith in Messiah brought near not only to God and Messiah but brought near to the Commonwealth of Israel, so much so that they now form a a, a, a um a uh what does he call it a uh, their uh fellow heirs and fellow citizens with the household of God with the saints. So the perspective from the Apostolic Scriptures, of course, Paul wrote most of the Apostolic Scriptures. The perspective is always that Israel is the people that are near. And the Gentiles are the people that were far, of course we're talking about in proximity to the Spirit of God, the workings of God, the grace of God, the scriptures of God, uh, the truths of God, all of those promises that God gave to Israel through the scriptures, the prophets, um, these Put the people of Israel in a place where they were near to all of that. So think of like a bull's a a, a a target where you've got uh, outer rings and then uh, concentrated rings that keep going smaller and smaller as you get towards the, closer to the bullseye. The bullseye, in my little analogy here, would be God Himself and all that God represents, right? His truth, His word, His promises, His covenants. And Israel would be those concentric circles around uh, the bullseye. The Gentiles would represent those farther outer rings. They were farther away from those, right? They they weren't familiar with the promises of God, uh, the covenants of God, the nature of Messiah, all of that. So, Paul wants to let them know, in Messiah, you've been brought near, not only to God, but near to Israel. And this is carried on through the theme of Romans as well, using his olive tree analogy in Romans chapter 11. He describes it as two trees. The first tree that is the close tree, is the cultivated olive tree. That's the family of Israel, the family of Abraham. And Paul describes these uh, branches as being close, right? Close to the programs of God, the promises of God, the covenants of God. This doesn't mean that everyone's automatically saved. Don't misunderstand Paul's analogy. Simply talking about a measure of grace that's poured out for people who are in closer proximity to Uh, God's program and what he's doing at any given time in history. That's the people and the nation of Israel based on God's covenant promises to them and his inner workings with them as a people group. Bring in the wild olive tree. Who's the wild olive tree? It's the Gentiles who are off to the side in Paul's analogy who are, because of their faith in Messiah, being taken from their place of wild or, or far away and being brought and grafted into and among the cultivated branches, namely the people of Israel, and more specifically, the remnant of Israel, a.k.a. uh, the Messianic Jewish groups that were um, coming to faith in Messiah in that day. So, it's the same analogy that he uses in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, to uh, that he uses in uh, Romans uh, 11 there. So, that's the scope of of the context of what um, uh, Mark Nanus is trying to remind us of when Paul's writing to Romans. To the, at the very least, we have to remind ourselves as we're studying chapter 14 that Paul has already written what he wrote in chapters 9 through 11, right? At the very least, they've already got that olive tree analogy behind them as they're do, uh, reading this part of Paul's letter. So let's keep reading. This is Mark Nanos. He not only cites Jewish scriptures, speaking of Paul, which he will continue to do in the letter more than any extant letter. Right? That's kind of fascinating in and of itself. If you compare all of Paul's letters against one another, he quotes from the scriptures, from the Jewish scriptures, more so in Romans than he does any other letter. Which, stop and ask yourself, um, The question is, we're going to look at this topic in a moment, where would the Gentiles have had access to the scriptures of Israel? Do you think they own their own copies? Do you think they could just scroll down to the local Bible bookstore and pick up a copy of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament, of the Torah? I don't think so. Where would the Gentiles have to go in order to read or hear the words of God being spoken in a public setting? You already know. Is the synagogue we'll talk about that some more so um, paul quotes from the scriptures from the jewish scriptures to bolster all of his arguments over and over again of course he's probably quoting from the greek septuagint which was put which was already in circulation some 200 nearly 300 years earlier than paul hit the scene so um, nanos as a historian as a jewish historian uh takes note that some 50 plus times paul alludes to the scriptures uh many more times Apparently assuming that the recipients would be uh competent to follow his line of thought, so um, the scriptures of Israel were vital for Paul's argument right keep you know you have to put yourself in this setting Paul's writing a letter to the to the Romans the people he's never met, and they've never met him and he's writing to them and he's making all these heavy quotes uh from Jewish resources, the scriptures, the Bible of, of Paul's day, which would have been the Old Testament that we call, the Tanakh is what I call it, and so he's never met them, and many of the Gentiles have never, perhaps, outside of a synagogue experience, seen or heard these particular scriptural references, right? In their own cultural setting as Greco-Roman citizens, they wouldn't have really had an appreciation or a need to know what the scriptures of Israel say. So how can we expect them to really trust what Paul's writing if they did not have, speaking of the Gentiles, if they did not have some close association with the synagogue groups at that time? I think it strains the context when we try to think of Jews and Gentiles as completely separated groups in Paul's day. Um, Reading back into Romans what we have by day standards, which is a split from church and synagogue. I don't think we had the church and synagogue split as heavily as we would like to describe it in Paul's day yet. To be sure, I don't think there really was any split just yet. I don't think we're going to see the split until further on down the road, particularly as we get closer to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the um, Jewish revolts uh, and things like that, um, the uh, plowing out over of, of Jerusalem, and Rome's increased, um, uh, uh, what would we say, uh, uh, not just desire, but attempt, that's what I was looking for, Rome's att- an increased attempt to squash these rebellious Jews who were kind of rising up against Rome. All right, so that's the context. Mark Nattos continues speaking about the scriptures of israel copies of these jewish texts at this time written on scrolls that were expensive to acquire and apparently not well known outside of jewish communities would presumably not be readily available of course to gentiles that's the context of what we're um looking at which all the more makes it vital that we place the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers close to one another, and those two groups particularly close to the synagogues. Even though we had an expulsion of Jewish people from Rome, like I said, um, it's likely that it was just a concentrated amount of Jews that were kicked out, a certain amount of troublemakers that got kicked out, or even though Claudius said, even if Claudius said all of you get out, the Jewish people um, didn't all go out. They didn't all leave. Uh, many of them stayed. It's more likely that um, an, you know it was only a five-year period that we're talking about, from the time of the decree to the time that Claudius himself was murdered, uh, and uh, and Emperor um, uh, Nero came into power. So um, you know that's not a lot of time to to. Uh, empty the land of Rome, of Italy, from all the Jews, right? It's not like they all could just hop on the next cargo plane and get out of get out of Rome. It wasn't that easy, right? They had to, you know, pack up, close business, um, you know, close all of their contracts out, uh, settle all their accounts, um, you know, tidy up all their, their, their personal belongings, get everything packed, and then book a, a, a boat, or something out of or or wherever they were going if they were going by ship or maybe they're going north, you know, into another part of of another country or east or west or something. Keep in mind all of that would have taken time and money and effort and they only had five short years in which all of this supposedly happened and all the Jews and we're talking on the low end maybe 200,000 Jews and on the high end maybe even 500,000 Jews it's just not really um, feasible that everyone really got out. So it's more likely that there was still a, a, a good Jewish presence in Rome when Paul wrote to the Romans, wrote to the uh, the, the Roman church. To be sure, we know that the, the decree had been reversed and the Jewish people, or at least those who did leave, were allowed to come back in, right? Um, um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were already back in in, in country, and they had gotten kicked out. So... Um, we know so because if you read through the end of the chapter of Romans, Romans sixteen that he then he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. So um uh the point is as we're reading through this part of my study here, it's better to just uh um, factor in the reality that Jews and Gentiles still had access to the synagogue communities, and the break and the split between church and synagogue, had not really been uh, finalized yet, or wasn't even really strengthened at this time. Here's what Nanos says. Moreover, speaking of Paul's uh, uh, recipients, most of the audience, most of his audience, would probably only know the letter when read aloud. And this includes Jews as well, right? Um, Religious Jews would have memorized heavy parts of the Torah, but at the same time, um, owning a personal copy of a Torah scroll wasn't something that your average Jew, certainly your average Gentile, didn't have access to. Um, And Nano says, since most people of Paul's time, uh, some 80 to 90% being the normal estimates of those people, they couldn't even read. Right, a literacy rate the the illiteracy rate was pretty high in that time, as was expected. Uh, reading was a luxury that um, uh, you you could only afford if you had a certain amount of money and a certain amount of um, access to teachers who could teach you how to read. Um, your average person, and this is corroborated by other historians, not just Mark Nando's, um the average person in Paul's day was illiterate, right? That wasn't that was just the norm. That's just the way it worked. Which is why, um, when it came to studying the Torah or the scriptures, it was more of an oral. Um, exercise. It was more something that was passed along from a teacher to student by mouth. Um, teachers taught and students listened and memorized and things like that. It wasn't like, okay, everybody, um, when you get home, open your Bible and turn to you know chapter blah, blah, blah. That doesn't work. It didn't work that way. So we need to put uh, all of this into perspective when we're talking about Jews and Gentiles appreciating what Paul's trying to teach him from God's Word and corroborate all of Paul's references to the Tanakh, and at the same time... How could this be possible unless the Gentile groups were still connected closely enough to the synagogue groups that they had access to hearing the words of God, uh, the Torah scrolls being taught, and things like that? Uh, Nanos continues, How then, and he asked the same question I did, How then would they know the scriptures speaking about the Gentiles? How would they know the scriptures upon which his arguments were based, apart from being socialized into Jewish communal life, and its symbolic system for making sense of of reality, or for that matter, of spirituality. We're still asking the question, how can they make for mutual peace and upbuilding as two groups that were separated by their socio-religious understanding of certain parts of the Bible? Um, And that's really uh, the question that we should be asking today as well. I think I'll I'll stop in the commentary here and pick this up next week and just kind of entertain just for the last few minutes some Uh, questions that we might bring up by today's standards. We'll read this last um, uh, section here uh, next week, and we'll kind of uh, uh, draw it to a conclusion there. But the question we could ask by today's uh, uh, communities, we've got Jews and Gentiles who worship together in church settings. Um, Most synagogues are free from Gentile Christian presence, for the most part, as far as I can tell. In my experience uh, uh, in the last... 25 or so years that i've been worshiping as a messianic jew with access to uh synagogues or churches your average christian that i encountered over the last 25 years as a christian myself is not really interested in visiting a non Christian synagogue. In other words, a traditional synagogue. It's just not on their it's not on their bucket list. It's not something that people are interested in doing. So most churches that I have been invited to speak at or um, that I visited or anything like that, if I ask the pastor or any of the congregants, hey, have you ever been to a traditional synagogue? Most people don't raise their hand. You may have one or two people, but for the most part, it's it's just not something that Gentile Christians are doing. On um, the flip side most jewish people are not visiting churches and they're not interested in doing so the rabbi doesn't want uh his jewish congregants visiting christian churches and investigating what christians believe for the most part that's what's going on um and most Jewish people in synagogues don't expect to see Gentiles coming into their church doors. So we have a drastically different social setting today than we had in Paul's day. But we still have the same responsibility as Gentile believers and Jewish believers to follow Paul's admonition to um, make for mutual upbuilding, right? Let me go back and, uh, up to the verse again. Paul admonishes us to pursue what makes for peace and mutual building he's speaking to jews and gentiles of his day believers in messiah and those unbelieving jews who would have been um part of the larger faith community but at the same time paul's letter is timeless the holy spirit has preserved this letter for us today we today's communities also have to pursue what makes for peace and mutual building how can we do that and so we could talk about how we can have um better um uh, dialogue between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to these misunderstandings of how to keep Torah um what parts of Torah are still relevant we could talk about um a better way to understand the scriptures together we can study together under uh, using some of the original languages Hebrew and Greek and things like that but either way and I'm just skimming over this tonight we'll get more into this next week either way um what's pertinent for us germane to my study as i draw this part to a close is that we have the responsibility to pursue what makes for peace and of course we also we already know and i'll just kind of. uh, reveal some of what i believe is the answer we already know that as jews and gentiles and messiah he is the one that's going to unify us as a people group we've got to set our priorities straight instead of focusing on the things that divide us like our cultural differences our social religious understandings of what passages are relevant for us and things like that what we can start with is our shared agreement on who Messiah is, the relevancy of his atonement in our lives, um, the importance of um, fellowshipping with one another as um, brothers and sisters in Messiah, um, the uh, relevancy of the cross. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit among us, Um, God is our common Father, things like that. Those are the things that are going to strengthen and build us and make for peace and mutual building. That's where we need to start. So, we'll look at more of this next week, but for now, that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged. Feast and fast and food, oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper three of three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? I made some changes to the commentary this week. Just um, made some kind of organizational changes, some uh, structural changes. I added a little bit more content, uh, make the, the, struct, the uh, uh, study a bit more um, easy to understand. So let me just sh- show you some of the changes. First change you're going to notice if you printed this out before this week um, is that I added numbers to the... Um, Paragraph points, And so now all those paragraph points that I mentioned, uh, which I added one, um, they've got numbers to them to make it easier to follow along. So let me just read through those real quick. Uh, number one, introduction, my bluff, my bottom line up front. That's where we're at tonight. We're in the second half of the introduction and we'll finish that tonight. Number two, uh, that we're going to be studying. This is a new new uh, topic that I added that I wrote this week. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Spirit of God versus Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit. I added that over, over the, this week, added that section, um, and developed it a little more um, extensively. So we'll look at these uh, designators that the Bible uses and um, try to ascertain Oh, uh, what the Bible is trying to teach us. Uh, the third section, number three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Who or what Spirit is indwelling believers? This is gonna, gonna dovetail off the uh, point number two about Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Number four, uh, who or what is the Holy Spirit? The Filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and Social Trinitarian Thoughts. This um, section was also reworked from the last time that you probably saw it last week. Um, To include, I rewrote and and added a section on the Filioque. Uh, The Filioque is a um, term that's referring to um, uh, an extra clause in the Western Church's creedal formulation about from whom does the Holy Spirit proceed? What's its point? Of, what is his point of origin? Does he proceed from the Father, or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? And how the Church of the East and the Church of the West uh, debated this particular discussion, and it is relevant for our um, Holy Spirit topic. And then we talk about Eastern Orthodoxy, Latter Day Saints, and Social Trinitarian. So that's section four. Section 5, that I uh, uh, updated a little bit as well, added some more information. Rabbinic Jewish Thoughts from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Um, That will be uh, interesting when we get to it. Uh, We're obviously not going to get to it tonight. That'll be months from now. Uh, Section number 6, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Unitarian Thoughts versus Classical Trinitarian Thoughts. I added some more information there to clarify another quote from a classic uh, Trinitarian source. um, And things like that. And then the last two sections... That I uh, I don't think I added anything to section number seven. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Revisiting the Holy Spirit passages from paper two. I didn't add anything there. I didn't change anything. And then section eight excursus: rock within versus rock upon. That is a, a kind of a digression discussion about was the Holy Spirit on people in the old testament versus being in people in the new testament how do we factor in the language that shows up in the bible how are we to understand the the holy spirit's role uh within the the body of messiah both then and now all right so having said that let's jump into the section 1 introduction my bluff which stands for bottom line up front, B-L-U-F, the bottom line up front, my bluff. And we already read through this section last week. Go back and listen to study number, episode number 153. And we stopped where we talked about um, this idea about, this last paragraph here, about the idea that um, when we're doing our scientific research, it's very important to factor in and bring in other opinions that, um, opinions from other rabbis pastors clergy members uh seminarians people in particular fields of study uh like uh, who know the original languages or uh historians or things like that these are all important opinions but at the end of the day the final authority on any particular topic is always going to be the word of god so this is just the balanced perspective that we need to um carry as we're studying the bible it's my recommended uh, uh approach as you're studying the bible It's not wrong to resort to commentaries, but at the end of the day, make sure that it's the Bible that has the most amount of weight. So let's pick up this study. I'll see if I can finish this part tonight. It's only two paragraphs long and I think I can do it as long as I don't dilly-dally, alright? Okay, here's what I have to say in my commentary. As a biblical Trinitarian and a Messianic Jewish believer, how do I wish to articulate my bluff, which is my bottom line up front? What do I want you guys to walk away with before we even get started into the study? I believe that the third person of the Trinity, known by believers as the Holy Spirit, is very god in his divine essence this person like the other two persons of the godhead possesses a nature that is full deity so right away what i let you know is that there's no deficiency the holy spirit the third person of the trinity he is fully god just like god the father and God the Son. There's no deficiency on the part of the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not a lesser God. He's not a demi-God. He's not a um, a mini-me or something like that. So that's something I say right away in my bottom line up front that I want you to know in my understanding of who or what the Holy Spirit is. And yet, I go on to say, apart from being identified as the third person of the Godhead, I also affirm... That in some mysterious way that I can't quite explain fully, right? It's unarticulatable, it's, it's um, ineffable, all right? We can't explain it completely. In some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit is identified in Scripture as the Father's very own Spirit, right? Understand that. Let me let that sink in for a second. The Holy Spirit is the Father's very own Spirit. So we could use the example of in the human terms, right? I'm Ariel, I'm a human being. Last time I checked, I'm fully human. I don't have any divinity, right? I'm not divine in any way that I'm aware of, right? If I am divine, then I haven't revealed it to myself yet. But I have a spirit inside of me, but it's, guess what? It's ariel spirit. It's not some second person of the ariel trinity or third person of the ariel trinity or something like that. Right? I don't exist in three persons. I'm not tripart. Humans have a body, a soul, and a spirit. We could say they're tripart in that way, right? We have body, soul, and spirit. But at the end of the day, we are creatures uh, more of a singular nature than we are of some multi um, personal nature, right? Now we're not talking about split personalities or any other type of, um, of, of uh, psychological condition. I'm just talking common sense. People follow along with me on my analogy. The spirit of Ariel is not a third person. Right? I can't send my spirit to accomplish um, great and mighty works for me. Right? It would be great if I could I could send my spirit out to work and wouldn't have to worry about catching COVID because right? I don't think my spirit is, is um, uh, susceptible to um, to the uh, COVID virus. This would be great. Then the, my spirit could go do the work and bring in the paycheck and then Ariel, the body, could uh, benefit from that. Right, Wouldn't that be great? Well, it doesn't work that way. But God's spirit is is in some way a third person but at the same time the bible describes the holy spirit as the father's very own spirit this is true we can't deny what the scriptures teach while i go on to say in my commentary let me scroll up a bit while at the same time i believe that he is identified in scripture as the resurrected messiahs very own spirit we're going to get to this uh in time there are passages where uh, particularly in the apostle scriptures aka the new testament where by the time yeshua is already resurrected right this is paul writing he talks about the spirit of christ or something like that the spirit of jesus and yet it's the resurrected messiah that he has in view which means paul's equating in those passages the spirit of the resurrected messiah with the holy spirit with the Spirit of God. So there's this overlapping feature going on. So that's why I say that I believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and yet he's the Father's own spirit, and yet at the same time he's identified in some places as the resurrected Messiah's very own spirit. It's all mysterious, and yet it's all um, found in in the very one Bible. I go on to say, I also affirm, this is still my bottom line up front, I also affirm that these very same scriptures Undeniably, teach that spiritual regeneration, i.e., salvation of a man, is only possible. It's only possible by having this one and only Holy Spirit take up residency within the very spirit of man. And you can compare this from uh, reading this this thought from reading Romans eight sixteen, which I have in my commentary as quote the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god end quote so romans 8 this is paul writing again right like we're studying in our roman study Paul's explaining to people that the only way and this isn't the only place but the only way that a a person can experience new birth regeneration viz salvation is if the Spirit takes up residency within your very own Spirit. So that there is this this union between the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and your very personal Spirit. There must be a union there. Of course, this is done as you place your faith in Messiah as God gives the gifts of faith to you so that your eyes can be opened. And there's that monergistic and synergistic work that takes place between God's working in you and your working with God, right? Your free will and God's will um, um, uh, colliding with one another and cooperating with one another so that it brings about the salvation. The point I'm trying to stress is that this is exclusive to... The Holy Spirit's taking up residence within you. This is different from, and we're going to talk about this later on, this is different from the Holy Spirit merely coming upon an individual, like we might read about in the Old Testament, and in certain places of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit can come upon a person, but that doesn't necessarily make that person regenerated or saved. The Spirit can come come upon a person, and the Spirit can move off of a person, right? He can go away that's his prerogative doesn't mean that he is that person is necessarily saved but when we get to the apostolic scriptures the new testament we definitely begin to have more and more language that describes um the spirit changing the heart of an individual from the inside out resulting in the birth of a new man from the inside out right old man new man paul's uh theology all over again his terminology in romans chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 um, he describes this this new birth, right? It's what Yeshua said to Nicodemus. Um, I tell you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit and of water, right? Of water and of the Spirit. Speaking of regeneration so, and, and salvation. We'll talk about that more in one of my points um, uh, when we get to it. I can't remember which point number it is, it's either two or three, um, about regeneration and salvation. I go on to say, now at this point in my commentary, right, talking about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of, of Messiah, the Holy Spirit, um, God's very own Spirit, and things like that, you would probably acknowledge that this is beginning to sound all very philosophical and esoteric, and probably not the least bit incoherent. And guess what? I would not readily disagree. The Bible uses language that doesn't always explain itself. Sometimes it just comes right out in your face, says something, and then Leaves off, doesn't explain it, doesn't articulate itself. It leaves us with, um, it leaves us scratching our head, trying to figure out what what the Bible's trying to say. But, uh, it's only from reading the context of all the scripture passages taken together that we can appreciate um a lot of the difficult sayings that we find in the Bible. And that's going to be the best way to study the Bible. Uh, once again, is always reading it in context. What do we say? Context is king. Let's keep reading. We'll finish this tonight. Admittedly, I say, as a Torah teacher who is moderately versed in Biblical Hebrew and Biblical Greek. I say moderately versed because I know just enough Hebrew and Greek to make myself dangerous, but I'm no expert. I'm no, um, uh, uh, I haven't mastered either one of those uh, Biblical languages, uh, much to my disappointment, as you're probably going to hear in the liturgy when I stumble over different Hebrew and Greek words. But, as a as someone who's got a moderate amount of understanding of the original languages i cannot logically explain how god who himself is a spirit can at one time be a spirit and yet at the same time send forth his personal living spirit which is the third person of the godhead to accomplish his will right i I can't understand how this is possible but i say in my commentary Remind yourself that it was Elohim God who created the heavens and the earth, and yet it was the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, who hovered over the surface of the waters, right? That's just the way Moshe wrote it. It causes us to stop and pause and ask, why did Moshe write the words the way he wrote? Why did he say that Elohim created, and then the Spirit of God hovered, and then... The Word of God took action as um, certain things uh, began to uh, appear, right? And God said, Elohim, And God said, You know, let there be light. And God said, let there be trees. And God said, let there be animals. Why didn't God just think it? Why didn't God just wave his hand? Why didn't he wiggle his nose, right? Why didn't he wave his arms or, or snap his fingers or something like, like that? You guys can hear all my... Uh, uh, um, my pop, uh, uh, references, you know, to like, you know, Avengers and, and things like that. Um, why didn't God use some other action to bring about the creative acts? Why did he have to say, why did Moshe write and God said, so we have God and the spirit and the word, I AKA the Trinity model all over again, um, in action in the text, if we would just stop and look at it that's mysterious to me right that makes me stop and pause and 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 uh and break out in songs of praise over the majesty and the wonder of this this complex god that we serve i can't put my finger on it right i I can i appreciate it i apprehend it even if i don't, if I don't fully understand it all right so let me keep uh explaining myself in my um my bottom line up front, my bluff. So, after having said all that, uh, and yet, in point of fact, right, in point of fact, the scriptures, because the scriptures, which are the final authority on any given matter, because they do indeed convey this very reality, right? God, His Spirit his word, working together here and there, uh, different words and things that I can see in the Hebrew, and the Greek, the Aramaic, right? These are the sources that I consider authoritative. Uh, because of this reality, I must affirm it by faith, even though it's mysterious, and I hold these paradoxical truths in tension, right? I see God creating in verse one. I see the Spirit Hovering in verse two, I see the word doing these actions in verse three, and it's mysterious to me. It's it seems almost contradictory to me, right? Um, I mean, at the very least, if you back up, just we've looked at this exercise before, but it's germane to my point. If you open up your Bible to Genesis, the first few verses, and read about the Creator and who's doing the actions, and then you put your thumb in that section and you turn over to the new testament book of john and you start reading the first few verses there the john's prologue at the very least right on the surface on the face of it we say prima facie i think that's how you pronounce it on the face of it it seems like a logical contradiction right god is clearly the creator in genesis the first few verses and yet john tells us in in his prologue that the word this eternal word that was with god and was god which became flesh this is the one that's the creator and paul echoes that same sentiment from john right in in um first chapter of colossians i believe and in other uh books as well i think in parts of corinthians um uh i can't remember off the top of my head which other parts of the bible um uh i should have these memorized but i don't but you can look these up on your own Clearly, the apostolic scriptures uh, attribute creatorship to Jesus, to Yeshua, the Word made flesh, the Word who who was ter- eternally with God in in ages past. The uncreated Word who was with God and yet was God, he is the one who's responsible for him, by him, and through him. All things were created. Paul goes on to explain. I think that's uh, the Colossians passage itself, or might be one out of the Corinthians. But the point is, Jesus is given creative um. Uh, creative uh, uh, powers and, and authorship and he's given the credit, right? And yet, Moses doesn't say that it's the eternal word that created. The psalmist, I believe, if, I, if I'm correct, he fills in some of those gaps. He says by your word the heavens were created and things like that. We also read about that in the book of Job. So, and the spirit is the one who created me. I think it's Job who talks about that. The point being, is we have references throughout the Bible that fill in the final picture as to this um multifaceted uh this complex God that we serve. He's one God and yet Uh, given the um, names that show up in the Bible, titles that show up in the Bible, and creative actions that take place that are attributed here and there, we have to put the the picture together as we put them all together on the table. Only then can we appreciate uh, what we're reading. And like I said, Individually, it seems like they're, they're in tension with one another, like they're saying two different things. Like, you know, you have a verse over here, then your Bible says God is invisible. And then you have another verse, another part of, the bu- of a book that says um, they saw God, right? Or something like that. Um, is that paradoxical? Well, here's what I say in my commentary, and you've seen this before. Um, When we're talking about paradoxes, and I'm closing with this, when we're talking about paradoxes and seemingly, um, things that seemingly contradict one another, recall, as I mentioned in um, paper two above, that biblical students can easily attribute such paradoxes, quote unquote, to the phenomenon referred to as, quote, merely apparent contradictions that are the result of, Of unarticulated equivocations, viz., M A C R U E or Macru, and the footnote link there would point to um, Dr. James Anderson's uh, work. I think he's the one who invented this proprietary term Macru, but it's it's the acronym there, M A C R U E, or merely apparent contradictions, M A C, that are the result are of you unarticulated. E. Equivocations. And keep in mind that um, when we talk about unarticulated, um, we're talking about um, something that's not mentioned or coherently expressed. Uh, We don't always have all the wording and terminology that shows up in that particular place. Um, Equivocations. What does that refer to? Uh, It's the use of ambiguous language to conceal the truth or to avoid committing oneself. Um, It's some sort of, of, of ambiguity which sometimes it's it's intentional and sometimes it's not. So I don't think Moshe intended to confuse us by saying in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then only to have John come along uh, hundreds of years later and say that it's Jesus who's the creator and then, you know, uh short time later or I suppose Paul wrote before John but a, a, a few books later uh have Paul come along and say it's, you know, Jesus is the creator. I don't think that They, these authors were purposely trying to confuse us and contradict one another, and um, uh, put equivocations into the text. But what it serves God's purpose to push us into a place where, in order to understand what He's teaching us, what God is teaching us through His Word, we have to study the whole thing out. And that's the overall picture that I think the Word of God is presenting itself to us. If you want to understand God, don't stop reading till you get to the Book of Revelation. It's unfortunate that Israel of old and Israel today stops at the Book of Malachi in the Christian Bible or Second Chronicles in their Bible, but they don't read the whole book. And it's unfortunate that many uh, Christians, by today's standards, start. Two thirds of the way in at the Book of Matthew, and they don't start their reading in Genesis. Well, I submit to you that the really the proper way to understand the Bible is start at one end and work your way to the other end. Even if you start at the middle, um, make sure you come back around and pick up the part the part that you uh, skipped at the very beginning. If you start at Matthew, don't finish until you um, get circle all the way back around to the book of Malachi. And if you start in Genesis, if you're Jewish and start in Genesis, don't stop reading until you get through Revelation. Amen. Amen. And that'll do it for exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy real quick. Um, I'm going to read uh, from the book of Leviticus for our Old Testament liturgy, and from the book of... Um, uh, what do I have? That First Thessalonians for our New Testament liturgy, and I think I for tonight, since we're in the fall feasts where these are upon us now, um, I'm reading Leviticus 23, the first say maybe four verses because they they um, mention um, festival language, and then uh, specifically by the time you watch this video, since the feast of trumpets will have already been passed, um, in the First Thessalonian passage, I'm going to read from a passage that talks about the uh, trumpet. And things like that and i'm gonna do something a little different i'll read um let's see do i have time i think what i will do is i will read only english i was going to read english hebrew english greek but i think i'll read english only and then next week i'll read uh uh hebrew and greek together so let me change the uh version of the bible real quick let me switch this over to esv and we'll just read uh this part. we'll read the first um like I said, just the first uh I think four verses, which the reason I read four is the first three verses uh the first two verses talk about the feast, then the third verse throws in the Sabbath. And then the fourth verse picks up the feast again. So it's kind of jumps around a little bit, and that's why I'm reading it that way. So let me just read ESV, uh, like you can see on your screen, no Hebrew tonight. The feasts of the Lord, ESV, starting in verse 1 and 2, right there on your screen. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, that's verse 1, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Verse 3, starting with the Sabbath, keeping in mind that the feasts are also Sabbaths in and of themselves, but speaking out the seventh-day Sabbath, Moshe writes, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Verse 4, which starts up with the Passover, uh, but I'm not going to read verse 5. Verse 4 says, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed time for them, at the time appointed for them. And then he launches into an understanding of the Passover, and I, really I should just drop all the way down and read uh, verse uh, 23 and twenty. 4 and 25 where moshe says and the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the people of israel saying in the seventh month on the first day of the month you shall observe a day of solemn rest a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets a holy convocation verse 25 you shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the lord and we'll read more Next week, we'll read the Hebrew equivalents of what I just read in the English, but that'll do it for our liturgy from the uh, Tanakh. Let's turn to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. I was going to read um, English and Greek, but instead let me do the same thing that I did with the Tanakh. I just turn to the ESV. We'll read English only tonight. Um, I'm only reading the last four verses of the... Um, chapter uh there's so much i could say about this but i want to keep the liturgy somewhat short starting in verse 15 we'll read down through verse 18 so 15 16 17 18 paul says for this we declare to you by a word from the lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the lord will not precede those who fall asleep so the topic of course is Uh, We might talk about resurrection or something like that. Maybe rapture. We could use that word if you want to. Um, But either way, he's talking about resurrection most definitely. And the thing that ties it into this time period that we're in... Is look at verse sixteen, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and ready for this, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's our resurrection. But notice the um the uh the trumpet. Right, The sound of the trumpet, uh, which connects it to the Feast of Trumpets. Um, right? Rosh Hashanah on your calendar is probably what it's going to say, but the Bible calls it, in most places, the Feast of Trumpets. It, it is called... Um, uh, Yom, the, the the first of the year, uh, I can't remember the Hebrew off the top of my head, but um, uh, we'll look at that next week. We'll read those passages where uh, the, the trumpet is sounded, the shofar is sounded. In this passage, it's not the same word for shofar, it's a Greek word for metal trumpet, but really doesn't matter uh, so much so. We're still talking about the sound of a trumpet. Verse 17, Paul says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord and then the final passage verse 18 therefore encourage one another with these words we'll read the Greek next week uh, along with the Hebrew but that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight all right let's watch the video the video is on the importance of the fall feast. let me just turn over here and you'll see this again uh oops that's not where i want um it was here there we go featured youtube video um what is the prosthetic significance of the fall feasts in the old testament we'll watch the video and then we'll simply after the video dismiss in prayer you ready here we go Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Date's of Torah Ministries 2015, all rights reserved. Okay, here's our question for tonight. What is the prophetic significance of the fall feasts in the Old Testament? I will be very brief in my answer, since you can read about my additional views on the feasts of Adonai in these e-Bible posts. Uh, you can see my um, video to How Did Jesus Fulfill the Meanings of the Jewish Feasts. Make sure you click on this link right there near the top of the screen. Also, I will be producing a video on what is the Feast of Tabernacles, probably within the next few days days or maybe a week or so. As was already noted by the question, the spring feasts are shadows of the redemptive work of Yeshua Jesus during his first coming here on earth. National Israel was supposed to learn about their Messiah by participating in these annual agricultural and religious gatherings. And here they are in bullet point form. We've got Passover, which pointed to him being Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, per John one twenty nine. Next bullet point is Unleavened Bread pointed to his sinless perfection. Read 1 Peter one nineteen. The next bullet point, First Sheaf, a.k.a. First Fruits, pointed to him being the first fruits of those who rise from the dead, never to die again. You can read 1 Corinthians 15.20 for that reference. And then lastly, for the uh, Spring Feast, we've got Pentecost, which pointed to his Holy Spirit, the that he promised would be poured out on all flesh, and we've got several references. We've got Joel 2:28 through 32, John 14:26, Acts 1:8, as well as Acts 2:16 through 21. Given the paradigm set by the prophetic significance of the spring feasts, it's natural to anticipate and expect that the fall feasts hold prophetic significance for national Israel and the grafted in branches known as the church as well. To be sure, most Christians have been taught that the themes surrounding the fall feasts are related to Messiah's second coming. And this would fit God's timetable precisely because of his ongoing dealings with national Israel as a covenant people. For instance, observe these points. Let's just look at the fall feasts. We'll use bullet points like we did for the spring feasts. Rosh Hashanah, a.k.a. the Feast of Trumpets, points to trumpets heralding the approach of the coming king and the need for repentance. In other words, the theme of Awake, O Sleeper. And this is in preparation of his arrival. It also points towards the future resurrection of the dead. You can read Daniel 12.2, Ephesians 5.14, 1 Thessalonians 4.13-17. second feast would be Yom Kippur, or second bullet point, is the Day of Atonement, and it Points to the once and for all final atonement for national Israel as she considers Yeshua, who is both high priest and sacrifice all in one. Read Zechariah 12:10 as well as Romans 12:26. And then lastly, for the fall feasts, we've got the Feast of Tabernacles, which points to God making his final abode with mankind as he establishes his messianic kingdom here on earth. Our biblical references are Zechariah 14:16, John 14:3, and then lastly, Revelation. 21.3 So, what are our conclusions? As Gentile believers who have joined the commonwealth of Israel, per Ephesians 2.11 through 22, it is additionally beneficial to take an interest in the fall feasts of the Bible since they point prophetically forward to the final ministry of our Lord Yeshua and his dealings with humanity's redemptive history and with Israel's final repentance in particular. You can read Luke 24, 27. Romans 3, 1 and 2, as well as 9, 1 5 for those references. Yeshua perfectly fulfilled the first four of the seven biblical festivals during his first tenure here on earth. It is my belief that he will, with equal precision, fulfill the last three during his second visitation here on earth. No one knows if the exact dates that each feast is so scheduled to cure will in fact coincide precisely with Messiah's plans, per Matthew 24, 36. However since the Bible does say that we believers are not in darkness, read 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, and that we should be aware of the signs of our Lord's return, per Matthew 24, 32, and 33, it is a safe assumption that the timings surrounding Yeshua's second coming activities, as relative to the themes and dates of the fall feasts, will be fairly close to, if not on, the exact same date scheduled by the Father way back in Leviticus 23. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the short little video for tonight. I pray that you will have a blessed uh, fall festival season as it is upon us. Be blessed and stay safe in the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the study. I thank you for the participation, not only from the live students who join me week after week, which is such a blessing, but also, um, Lord, I'm so blessed to be able to uh, share these teachings with people from around the world. via YouTube and via uh, iTunes and via my website and the other resources. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to bless us and raise us up, help us to have an appreciation for not just reading the Word of God, but studying it and meditating on it and chewing on it and allowing the words to sink down deep into our spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to activate the truths. And Lord, we also know that there's no really better way to um, uh, kind of... uh, just jump into the Bible then to join a con- a congregation where you can uh, keep as much of the Bible as you can. Lord, if, if at all possible, um, I'm describing um, uh, participating in a Messianic congregation or a, ch- a church that has an appreciation for the whole of the Bible. And uh, this is so much more made more relevant as the fall feasts are here upon us. Thank you, Lord, for the truths of your festivals and what the work of Messiah means to us as we can see it foreshadowed in the in the festivals and we get a chance to participate with him uh, as we meet together and we blow our shofars and we we um, uh, say the blessings and the liturgy and uh, we participate in, in in dwelling and sukkahs and booths and Lord just all the things that we do to to um, put feet to our faith and engage the Bible right where it's at making it real and alive and right relevant for us thank you lord for all of these wonderful wonderful truths that all point to you it's all about you and we celebrate you lord we lift up your name we thank you for uh providing for us and protecting us bring us back together next week and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory b'shem yeshua amen that concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer because the torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of yeshua as lord and savior it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability we have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism my name is ariel ben lyman hanavi